few weeks back, we took 20 students over to Berlin, Germany on a mission trip. We went over there to partner with a church that we at Ria Vista support. We went over there for two purposes. One was to hold this XCE presentation where we met with um, different leaders in the community from different churches and talked about evangelism, um, shared our experience, and also talked about what we use here, which many of you have gone through. And so we had 20 people show up to that, which was 15 more than the, the, one of the leaders in the churches expected. We had people from different churches that have never been connected before. So it was a really neat experience to see this body of believers in this community of East Berlin come together, talk about evangelism together, and to connect so they could go out and do ministry together in the future. We also did a service project, and we did a bunch of street evangelism, a lot. You saw the hand project um, when, when we left, I told you that the statistic was 85% of Berlin is atheistic. When we were over there, we found that it was more probably upwards of 95 and greater. Um, the people that we met that did in fact say God is love or um, God is a guide, typically those people were foreigners. Um, they weren't from Berlin. Because in Berlin, they teach atheism in the schools. We actually had multiple conversations with, with people that said, I've never thought about God before. This is the first time I've ever thought about God, and it's because you're asking me. Um, it was really a profound experience. But I want to share with you one experience that was supreme for myself, and I know for a lot of the students, was the open-air evangelism. What we did was we had this meeting, and we talked about evangelism. We talked about street evangelism. And they tell us, 30 minutes from now, you guys are going to go do street evangelism in a a plaza where there's thousands of people running around, and you're going to put on a presentation. And Carter, you're going to be a street preacher. And I thought, no. (laughs) We're not doing that. There's no way. I was so skeptical. I mean, if there's a bigger word than skeptical, that's what I was. I've never seen it done well. I've seen street preachers in college, and they're terrible. Um, I've seen a lot of hurt done in this regard. And so I was nervous and I was skeptical and our students were nervous. And so what we did is we, our band led worship and played worship songs. And we were in the rain for a bit. You saw the umbrellas and then we moved under a railroad track. And all of a sudden, once we start playing, all these people start gathering around and I'm thinking I just would have been better if they were passing by, but they're (laughs) gathering around, listening then our students are going up in the middle of songs and they're sharing their testimony. And I'm, you know, I'm overjoyed because I'm seeing our students step up in front of who knows how many people sharing their testimony. And then I'm called up and I got to, you know, share the gospel. And so I do. And it was the most humbling, one of the most humbling experiences I've ever had. I was so skeptical. I was so Nervous. I didn't, you know, I was like, what are people going to think? What are people going to say? What are people going to think when we get back? Um, all these things are running in my head, and I feel God calling me to say, Carter, trust me, empty yourself. Who cares what people think? Love me and show them that you love them in the way that you communicate and the way you talk with them. And it was the best thing that we did the entire trip. We, literally nothing else we did, we were able to get into any conversation with anyone for more than five minutes. When we did that, We had multiple gospel conversations. I talked with a student for 30 minutes who was 15 years old. His girlfriend didn't speak English. I began talking with him because our students were in the crowds talking with people that were watching. I started talking with him, and he looks at his girlfriend who doesn't speak English and says, will you mind waiting here for a bit? I want to talk with this, this guy about Jesus. So I share the gospel with him for 30 minutes. 
We had another student, um, multiple other students, share the gospel and talk with people that were new age. Um, They actually prayed with them and wanted to start going to church. And so we had this profound experience in something I was so skeptical about. And God taught me something. And he's been convicting me of something. And it's been ringing in my head ever since we left. And a lot of our students are feeling the same thing. It's that where is my heart aligned? Who do I love? Do I love myself and the world more? Or do I love God? And I was put in this situation where I had to, to, to wrestle with that question and give it over to God in this situation. But the question for me that's been ringing is who do I love right now, every day, when I'm in my comfortable world? And so we're going to be looking at this morning, two questions. One, who do you love, God or the world? John's talking about this in the letter of 1 John. And also, who do you love like, Cain or Jesus? Because who you love, God or the world, is going to determine who you love like. So we're looking at 1 John this morning, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, It says this, you can follow along in your Bible or you can look on the board. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So John comes out right in the beginning and says, listen, don't love the world. There's a conditional sentence here. If you love the world, the love of God is not in you. He just plainly puts it. There's two choices. Loving the world, love of God is not in you, or love God. And he lets you know what loving the world means. He says three things, but it's really one idea with two subcategories. Loving the world means you love yourself. The desires, the lust of the flesh. Those things that you can get and you can take in the next hour, in the next week, in the next year that you can run after to say, I have a good, successful life. Look at all the stuff I have. Not necessarily stuff, but also appearance or status or popularity. We live in a microwave society and our push is to try to make something for ourselves as fast as we can and to get stuff. It's the desire and the lust of the flesh. And John is saying, don't fall into that. Don't love that. Because God's not, God's not in you. His love is not in you if you're loving those things. And he, and he clarifies, he said, it's two things. One, it's the lust of the eyes. It's those things that we see, those things that we want, those things that lead us to covet because we don't have them. And so we set our life after living for those things, taking those things for ourselves. And then the second part is what we do once we get them. We boast about them. Look at all the stuff I have. Look at how great I am. Look at how successful my life is. I'm such a good person. All these things. We try to accumulate things for ourselves, the things that we lust after with our eyes, and then we have the boastful pride of life of look how great my life is and look at all the stuff I have. That's loving the world. It's not enjoying the things that God has given. It's loving them, lusting after them, coveting them, boasting about them. And the reason that these things are antithetical with God is because if you love the world, you have no room for God. Because you're saying, I am my own God. I want to go after what I want in my life. These things are most important. These things will determine a successful life if I can get them and then I can boast about them. There's no room for God in that because there's no ability for us to empty ourselves when we love the world. 
because we're in a sense loving ourselves. And John says in the end, listen, if it wasn't enough for you to to start thinking through this and dissecting your heart about who you love, let me put it pretty clear. If you love the world, you're going to pass away because the things of the world are passing away. He's giving you two fates. He's saying what you love determines your fate. So if you love the world, you're going to pass away with the world. Not only at the end, but also as you love it. Because the things that we love in this world, they deteriorate. And so when you're living for those and when you're loving those, you are going to be passing away with it, your soul. But if you love God and you do his will, you're in a sense walking towards eternity. You're making yourself more eternal because you're living for things that will never end. You're living for things that last. And so he's telling us, don't love the world. One, because God is not in that. There's no love of God in those that love the world. But also, don't love the world because you're going to pass away with it. But love me, love God, who is eternal and live forever. And he clarifies what that means. He says, loving God, living for God, is when you do the will of God. Well, the question is, what is that? What's the will of God? we got a bunch of books on it. You probably have a book on it, determining the will of God. I think we make it more complicated than it really is. I think it's fairly simple. John in his gospel says the will of God five times. And he, every single time he says the will of God, there's a synonymous sentence that follows. And it's the will of God is this. It's carrying out the mission that God has given you. That's the will of God. Well, the question is, that can be kind of in the clouds, carrying out the mission that God has given me. What is the mission that God has given me? There's a bunch of smaller missions, but there's one great mission. And Jesus makes it clear when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? What does he say? He's asked what the greatest commandment is. They're trying to debunk Jesus. And he says, here it is. Love God with everything you have, with your heart, your mind, your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest mission, the greatest commandment. Why does Jesus say two things instead of one? He was only asked for one. It's because he has to say two things. Because you can't love God and not love others. It's impossible. So Jesus, when he's asked what the greatest commandment is, what's the will of God? What's the greatest mission for us to do to live? It's loving God and loving others. If you've ever seen a horse race and, you know, they're really close at the end, you go to the photo finish, right? And you see the horse and you see the one that's right in front of the other but the other ones are really close second. That's what Jesus is saying. He couldn't keep his mouth shut when he's asked the greatest commandment because the second one is right behind it. They run together. So if you love God and you truly have given yourself to God, then you are going to love others. They're, they work together in unison. That's the mission. That's the will of God. That's how we walk in eternity to enjoy God and live forever is doing his will, his mission, loving God and loving others. And John goes on to tell about this in 1 John 3, which we're going to spend the most of our time in this morning. 1 John 3, 11 through 18, reads this, and we're going to go through it. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love 
abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love the word, love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. John is clarifying here, saying, I just talked about in the, in the previous chapter to you all, you've got to make a choice here, loving God or loving the world. And now I'm letting you know that this is how you're supposed to love, what love looks like. Don't be like Cain, who was wrapped up in the world. Be like Jesus. In the beginning, he talks about Cain, and he says, don't love like Cain, who hated and killed his brother. And if you remember the story about Cain and Abel, God did not accept Cain's offering. It says this in Hebrews 11.4, By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. So Abel and Cain are brothers. Abel is a herdsman. He tends the flock and the sheep, and Cain works with fruit and produce. Their jobs, very specific, very important jobs. That was the lifestyle. That's how you accumulated wealth. That's how you um, lived, was you cared for the sheep and you cared for the fruit. It was important. Both jobs. And so they're called to bring an offering. And Abel brings the fattest firstling, it says. What it's saying is he brings the best he has. Everything he has, the most important, most expensive, the nicest thing he has, he brings it to God and he offers it to him. In a sense, he's coming in faith saying, God, I'm going to give you the best and I'm trusting you. I'm trusting that you will want not only accept this offering, but that you will provide for me. What, is Abel, what does Cain do? He brings a little bit. It says he brings a portion. Cain looks at what he has and he says, I have the first fruits, I have all this best stuff, but that's really important to me. And this is, you know kind of how I'm going to grow in the society and accumulate wealth and have a successful life. But I need to make face with God in this community, so let me give a little bit. And God doesn't accept it. Why? Because of his heart. His heart cared more about the world and about himself than he did God. It's not because, you know, his fruit was bruised or his fruit wasn't good. It's because he had better and he wouldn't give it to God. Because he cared more about himself. And the scary truth that's been convicting me is if Cain was here today, he'd look a lot like me and a lot like us. He would be a socially conditioned, nominal Christian because he was born in Christian culture. He'd probably come to church most of the time. He would tithe a little bit, but never enough to affect his lifestyle. Never enough so he'd have to trust in faith that God is going to provide for him. He would probably do service projects every now and then, um, just so people knew that you know he was kind of a good guy and he did some good stuff for this you know community, as long as other people were there so they could see him doing it. And he would probably go to community group most of the time because people would say, "Why is Cain not in a community group?" You know, because he wanted people to to know he's a Christian, he's a nominal Christian. And right now, as I talk, I'm talking to myself as much as anybody else because I have to check my heart, my attitude, and my motives so often and ask myself, who am I living for? 
my living for the world and all the things that it can give me that I, that I, my sinful nature I want so bad and I, I want to love and live for? Am I living for God? What, what is my heart and my motives? Because I don't want to be a nominal, socially conditioned Christian that just does just enough so that I look good to others. I really want to give it all. I mean, if I believe this crazy story that God came in the form of a man, Jesus, and he lived the perfect life, and then he died on the cross for my sins and rose from the grave, and now he offers me this great purpose and this great life to live, and he's promising me eternity, that's a radical message, and it calls for a radical life. That's why God is saying, you can't love the world and love me. It's one or the other. Don't love like Cain. Not, he's not just saying, don't be a murderer. He's saying, don't be like him. Don't be selfish. Don't be stingy. Don't be greedy. Don't be hardened to forgiveness. Don't be unwilling to repent. Don't love and give yourself over to the world and its desires and its lusts. But love me and give yourself to me. And he says something in the second part. This is what's going to happen. He, he lets you know. When you really give yourself to Christ fully and you live for him radically and you love others, something's going to happen. You're going to be hated by someone. At some point, you're going to be hated. And John's writing to them because the secessionist movement, the false prophets, are starting to hate the Christians because they're projecting this worldview on them, saying this is how you should live, this is what's most important, this is what's true. And the Christians are saying, no, it's Jesus it's living for Jesus. It's loving him and loving others. And they're being hated by this community. So what can we glean from that? There are plenty of people in this world that claim to know truth, that claim to project their worldview on us. And they will hate you when you claim absolute truth. When you claim Jesus is the only way. When you love them, even when they hate you. That's just going to make them more mad. I think of someone like Christopher Hitchens a well-known scholar, atheist, that says Christianity is a wicked cult and it's high time we left it behind. We see something all throughout Scripture with the apostles, especially, is they're going out on this, this mission, giving themselves over to God, saying, God, we love you with everything and we're going to love others and we're going to share your gospel. And there's always two things that happen when they go somewhere and they talk about Jesus or they serve others and they love others. Two things People either are transformed and they come, to, they come to Christ, or they're hated. It's always one or the other. It's never like, okay, let's, you know, we don't really care about you. It's either they hate them or they love them. And the question for me and for us this morning is, have you ever been hated because of your faith? And if you haven't, why? Because if people are opposed to God and you are of God, then shouldn't you experience people being opposed to you? I think we should. And I think the, the question is, does anyone know that you love God? Do they see it? Have you ever told them? Do they see it in the way you live? Because two things are going to happen. You're going to see transformation happen in these people's lives, or you're going to experience segregation or hatred. One of those two things happens because we're to be marked by love. We're to be marked by this love for God and people should know it. And John's letting you know what's going to happen when you're marked by that. He's saying, let the world hate. 
but we don't hate, we love, and we live it out in our lives. And he clarifies what this love is. What is love? Is it a feeling? Is it something we just say? He says, this is what love is. He said, Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, but whoever has the world's goods, the things that God has blessed us with, and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Saying love is action. It's not feeling. Jesus didn't just come and stand in front of a bunch of people and say, hey, hey guys, I'm the son of God. I love you. Now go live for me, follow me, and die for me. He told him he loved him. He talked about truth. He told him all of these things about who God is and who he was, and then he proved it. He killed himself. Then he rose from the grave and said, listen, I really do love you, and now you see it. Now go love others. He proved it. It's an action verb. He's saying this is how we are to love. Not a feeling, not a a thing that we talk about, but it's an action that we put into practice. We love people. And he clarifies it, and he says, this is what it looks like. When you see a need, you fill it. You don't let it pass you by. He puts us in a place of responsibility. I love this quote by the scholar Dodd. He says this, Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for our own life to enrich the life of another. It's being the opposite of Cain. Giving that which has value for us to enrich someone else's life. It's selfless. It's giving over of our pride and our worldly dignity, our possessions, our time. And there's two factors that place us in responsibility that John lets us know about. He says, when you see a brother in need and you close your heart against him, how can God be in you? He says, you see needs. Look for needs. I'm sure a lot of you drove here this morning and you probably saw a homeless person. Or in your work or in your neighborhood, you know people that are hurting, that are down, that are broken, have no joy, have no hope and purpose in life. There are needs everywhere, and you see them. And the question you are to ask yourself is, can I fill it? Am I able, because of the things that God has given me and who I am and the blessings he's bestowed on me, am I able to fill those needs? He's calling us to apply what we have to what we see. Because when we see it, we're held responsible for it. And we have so many opportunities to do this. We have opportunities with Hope South Florida and this homeless initiative. We have opportunities with Hope Pregnancy and Trees of Hope and Four Kids. All these different ministries that we're involved in, but it's more than that. It's more than just a ministry. It's living it individually. Living it every day. John ends and he says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. Don't just talk about it. Love isn't something you just talk about and you feel. It's something you do. I love this quote by G.P. Lewis. It says, It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. We can love everybody. You know, we want to see everyone's needs met. We just really feel for them. But it's so easy to love everybody in general and never actually love anyone in particular because people in particular 
When you get into relationship with them, they're dirty, they're exasperating, they're often annoying, frustrating, all the things that we are as well. And so it's easy for us to love this kind of cloudy idea of loving humanity, but putting it into action and loving individual men and women is a lot harder. And that's the call that John gives us. He's saying, if you love God, then you should love like Jesus. That's putting it into action. Loving individual men and women who are dirty and hard and exasperating and depraved. He's calling us to make this choice of our heart. Where is our heart aligned? And I often think about um, the first century church and how within 30 years, fully within 100 or so, but within 30 years, the Christian church turned the world upside down. Jesus rose from the grave. He gives this great mission to the apostles and to the people of God. He calls them to, to go out and share the gospel, and they do. They go out all over the world. They share the gospel. Most of them are killed for it. But the question is, how did the church become so pervasive in culture within 30 years? Is it only because of these really passionate apostles? They're part of it, but I think it's because of the church. The people in the church that these letters are written to, that is how the world was turned upside down, not just because of 12 men and their friends. It was the church. It was the people that got it and lived it out. Within 30 years after Christ rising from the dead, Christianity was so pervasive in culture, so threatening that Nero was killing every single Christian he could find because they were afraid that Christianity was going to take over the world, which it eventually did. That's why we're here today. That's why there's Christians in, in China being persecuted, suffering for their faith. It's why it's, it's spreading over across the entire world is because men and women in the beginning got it and they lived it. They said, I'm not going to choose the world. I'm going to choose you, God. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to give everything. And I'm going to love like you did. I'm going to forsake the temptation to live for the world and for myself and be my own God and love like Cain. And I'm going to love like you. I'm going to give my heart to you. I'm going to diagnose my heart and ask myself, where am I aligned? That's what God has been, has been convicting me of in my own life, and, and I say this because I think so often we think about the first century church and the effects they had, and I ask the question, why can't we have similar effects now? It wasn't like they all had some supernatural power. It's they got it. They loved God and they loved others. They did the will of God. And they transformed the entire world. We can transform a city if this church and the other churches around Get that. God has called us to love him and love others, to forsake the world and its deception, and to live for God and to live for others selflessly. We can bring transformation to this city, to this community. And so I leave you with the two questions that God has been ringing in my ears. Who do you love? God or the world? And then, who do you love like? Cain or Jesus? It's extremely critical questions for us to ask. So I want to leave you with this quote that I read earlier. Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for your own life to enrich the life of another. That's the call. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love.
that has transformed our lives, that you have shown us the greatest love, killing yourself for those of us that didn't even love you, carried our sin and our shame, and you did away with it, and you offer us this this life of joy and this eternal life. And God, we're so quick to fall into the temptations of the world and to live for ourselves and be our own God and, and forgive us of that. This morning, I pray that your word would be what convicts us. That we would realize that this is a huge issue, our heart. That's what you care about. You care about our heart, God. And do we love you or do we love ourselves more? And the things of this world. So Lord, convict us, stretch us, call us back to yourself to live for you, to put love into action to have faith that you can bring transformation to this city. Lord, your gospel is, is so amazing. And we pray, Lord, that it would transform our lives, transform the life of the people in this church, and transform this city. Help us to love in the way that we give of those things in our own life to enrich the life of another. Loving individual men and women who are dirty depraved, exasperating. Because God, we are the same. So forgive us of our inaction and call us to action. Forgive our heart and align us to yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.